Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the podcast Three Sides with me, Aaron McLeod, where we will talk about all things that fall under the umbrellas of high performance, passion, and equality. Hi, everyone. I am very excited for this episode today. Um, I'm going to present to all of you the speech that I delivered at the United Soccer Coaches Convention. I wanted to do it because obviously I've been playing for a really long time and I've had so many fantastic coaches and mentors and teachers, not just shape the way that I play, but also who I am. But before we get into that, we're going to start with an ad from Bet Online. Bet Online would like to wish you a happy new betting year as we continue our march to the playoffs and beyond. Bet Online remains the number one spot for all the best sports wagering action for 2022. New year and a new updated desktop and mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That is my dog in the background. She also bets online. Just use our promo code BLEAV, capital B-L-E-A-V, to get started. From football, basketball, hockey, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for 2022. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports. Bet online, where the game starts. So before I get into the speech today, I first want to give my shout out to the United Soccer Coaches Convention for, first of all, allowing me to come out and um, be the keynote speaker at the breakfast. It's basically all the people in that room were people that coach women. And it was such a fantastic experience in the sense that everybody in that room I always talk about love and abundance, truly believed in that. It was all about empowering one another, supporting one another, and it really inspired me so much. And afterwards, had a lot of really powerful conversations with my business partner, Dr. Rachel Linval, and her husband, Jamie Linval. We were just talking about everything under the sun. We talked about feminism, what feminism really looks like, how there's been multiple waves in history. And so from there, I thought, okay, it'd be so cool to do an episode on social constructs. And then of course, like a lot of the episodes I've already done, I started kind of going down the rabbit hole of social constructs. And there's so much to go over that I just feel underprepared for uh, giving an actual podcast because it could really just be the beginning of so many podcasts around race, around gender, about everything. So um, stay tuned for, for that. But I just want to say how grateful I am that I had this opportunity to speak in front of so many influential leaders and coaches in the country right now, mostly because my entire life, I have been, well, really since I was four years old, I've been an athlete. So, so many coaches and of course, teachers and mentors have shaped how I play, who I am, and I wouldn't be here without them. And I wouldn't be here without some of them questioning me, which I will get into in the speech. So without further ado, la, 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 la. of course I have little Bo, little Bo Jackson, Ooh, I am for real in the background. So if you hear 
some dodgy sounds. I'm going to blame it on the dog. Here we go. All right. So anyone listening, I want you to first think about one of your first inspiring teachers or coaches. And now think about whether that was easy or hard for you to do. For me, it was the fifth grade. I was in French immersion and my teacher, Mademoiselle Costa, had recently moved to Canada from France. She had white, very pale skin, auburn hair, very slim, and always dressed in all black. She was very French. Every school day at about 3 p.m., she would ask us to put whatever we were doing, whether it was math or science, and put it in our desks, and she would go along the room and pass out blank pieces of white paper and little bits of charcoal for drawing. She would, of course, always put a piece of paper on her own desk as well. Then she had a tiny little boombox, yes, a boombox, that she would turn the volume up at the front of the room, and she would put in tapes of Edith Piaf or Charles Trenet, some classic French artists. Then I would watch her as she would kind of transport to this other place. She would put down these random lines that soon became these calculated pieces of beauty. She would kind of dance around the room in between the desks, She'd have charcoal all over her hands and face, saying, try this or add a little bit of that to each of the students. And it was my favorite time of day, every day. It's interesting when I think back to that moment, that feeling of being able to create anything. The feeling of being connected to the moment where everything stands still. It's the same feeling I chase when I play sport. And the reason I have become so passionate about mindfulness over the years, because its entire purpose is to be right here, right now. And because I have you for the next 16 minutes or so, I want to focus on the moments in my career that changed my life and the traits I have come to appreciate in coaches that I believe have made them inspiring people. I fell in love with sport when I was about five years old. I was watching the 1988 Calgary Olympics in my living room with the entire family. You can imagine, it was the 80s, so we had like turquoise carpet, brown corduroy sofas, teak wood everywhere, and we all crowded around the TV as a Canadian figure skater, Elizabeth Manley, came across the ice. Every single Canadian in the stands was up on their feet as the music died down. She had the skate of her life. Even the announcers were going crazy saying, she didn't make one mistake, not one. She was perfect. And there wasn't a dry eye in the McLeod household. It was the first time I saw a female athlete on TV. It was also the moment I decided that I was going to the Olympics. I didn't know how or with which sport, but I knew I was going. Fast forward to today, I've been to four FIFA Women's World Cups, three Olympic Games, I have a bronze medal from the 2012 London Olympics, I'm in the Canadian Olympic Hall of Fame, and in this summer, won gold with the Canadian national team in Tokyo. The moments that have truly changed me, though, they're not on this list. In 2007, I got my first chance to start for Canada at the Women's World Cup in China. When the tournament concluded, my keeper coach sat me down and told me that one day I was going to be one of the best goalkeepers in the world. One of the best, he said. 
Oof. I was pissed. I didn't want to be one of the best. I was only interested in being the best. My definition of success from that point on was to be perfect, because the best didn't make any mistakes. I'm pretty sure you can guess how that went. All of the joy was quickly sucked out of the game for me, and I didn't realize how miserable I had become until I was bawling my eyes out in a locker room in the 2008 Olympics, holding onto my leg because I had just torn my ACL. I acted like I was devastated. I mean, I was literally the kid and adult with the t-shirt that says soccer is life across it and would wear it every day of the week. But to be honest, I was mostly relieved. Then I had the most significant epiphany of my career. I'm sitting down with my sports psychologist, Alex Hodgins. We were talking about how I would often dwell on past mistakes and always be thinking about the past, or I would constantly be worrying about making mistakes in the future. And as a result, I was never in the moment which is the definition of performance anxiety, which I now know working with my business partner, Dr. Rachel Linval with The Mindful Project, who you all know has her doctorate in mindfulness research. And of course, since the fifth grade with Mademoiselle Costa, I have been in love with art. And so Alex asked me how I felt when I made a mistake in art. I thought it was the weirdest question. Mistakes in art? I was confused. Well, there are no mistakes in art. You simply start again, or you can paint over it, try a different technique maybe, and every once in a while, the mistake is the most beautiful part of the piece. At this point, Alex was smiling ear to ear, and it took me a moment to get caught up, and then it dawned on me. The way we see mistakes is a choice. We develop how we see mistakes as early as three and a half years old, so maybe choice isn't the right word. Perhaps mental habit is. But are we aware of our mental habits? And when do we become aware, even in general? When I gave a number of motivational talks to groups of 10 to 18-year-olds recently, I asked each group if mistakes were good or bad. And they all almost robotically said, they are good because you learn from them. And then I would ask, well, how do you speak to yourself after you make one then? And for a lot of them, it was as if for the first time they had really given that much thought. Most of them said they were mean to themselves, hard on themselves, unforgiving. Then I explained that research proves that being hard on yourself after making a mistake, it slows your learning, that self-compassion develops grit and a willingness to get up and try again, that being hard on yourself literally serves no purpose. Now, obviously being a perfectionist gets a lot of athletes and coaches incredibly far, but is it possible to have the learnings and well, a little more enjoyment? My biggest critic, being a perfectionist myself, has always been me. But what about becoming my own biggest fan? Up until this epiphany, it was fair to say that I believed everything my coaches told me. I rarely had coaches question me or my way of thinking. My sports site, for example, questioned my approach to mistakes and other mental habits. 
It just wasn't a common occurrence for me to reflect like that ever. I was a kid in university who used to love the classes where I would just listen, take a lot of notes. I would never participate. I would ace all my tests because I memorized information and that was it. Philosophy, however, was my weakest subject. I would work endlessly on essays and get feedback like there isn't enough paint on this canvas or my personal favorite, there are only potatoes here. I still remember the final exam like it was yesterday. Imagine your typical small classroom, about 25 desks scattered around, blackboard at the top of the, at the front of the room, smells like chalk. And on every desk, there was a stack of papers, obviously the final exam. So I sat down at my desk and the top right hand corner has date and subject. And then one question on this exam, why? So I wrote nervously as much information as I could remember from the class until literally the final bell went. And my teammate, also in the class, walked out after about two minutes. I ran into her later and, you know, it was kind of like, so did you just walk out of the exam or what? <laughs> she said, no, I, I answered the question. And I kind of gave her a puzzled look, being obviously insecure about my own exam. Well, then, like, what did you put? She said, well, the question was, why? So I just put, why not? She was the only one who got an A on the final. Soon after this epiphany about mistakes, it was around the same time where I started to invest in mindfulness. After realizing I had performance anxiety, my next challenge was being in the present moment more often. Leading up to the 2012 London Olympics, our national team was lucky enough to work with Dr. Kerry Evans, who works with the New Zealand All Blacks. Dr. Evans is a bald, seven-foot-tall man who obviously spends a lot of time in the gym. His life motto is, presence comes from being present in the moment. Like, this was my guy. I, of course, have zero shame when it comes to high performance and pride myself in being a little bit of a nerd. So immediately we scheduled a time to meet. I brought my notepad in, pen in hand, and simply asked, so Dr. Kerry Evans, what is your secret to success? He said, breathe in for three seconds and exhale for four. There was a long, somewhat awkward pause after his answer. I was waiting for more. But that was it. The counting puts a pause in the rumination or busy mind, and the longer outbreath activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for calming the body down and clear decision making. Today, this is still the mindfulness technique I use the most, but there are many more that make me a better and calmer player and person. Now looking back, I realized how many habits I was unlearning and replacing them with new helpful ones that also felt better. But it started first with an increase in self-awareness. I became literally an observer of myself. With guidance from Dr. Carrie Evans, I watched how the tone of my voice and body language had an impact on how people received the information I was giving them. I was able to put myself in other people's shoes more often. 
I recognized my weaknesses and mistakes in a more objective way and started recognizing the way I learned the most efficiently and also noticed how emotions can often cloud reality. I felt like I was waking up and finally using my mind instead of it using me. Years later, the Mindful Project was born over delicious Thai food in Eastern Germany when Dr. Rachel Linval and her husband, Jamie, and I were discussing how we were going to change the world. We thought, what if we knew all this when we were 20 or even younger? How much more could we learn and grow? And how much more could we enjoy the moment? How could this also create better learning environments for the players and for the coaches? Now, I may not be a coach, but I am passionate about leadership. For me, the best leaders are those who are real, who exhibit self-awareness, who do the work on themselves, but recognize that showing emotion is an important quality of being human. So do you remember when you were young, seeing one of your teachers outside of the classroom for the first time? When it dawns on you, like that they don't actually live their entire lives in the classroom and they might actually be people too? Or do you remember the first time you saw one of your parents or guardians cry? My family and I were visiting my grandparents one summer, mostly because my grandpa had been really sick with cancer. After staying for a short while, we each said goodbye, one by one to my grandma and grandpa, as we normally would do. However, this time was different, or it felt different. Because even though my sisters and I were quite young, we all knew that this might be the last time we would be saying goodbye to our grandpa. It was my dad's turn to then go into the living room where my grandpa was resting and say goodbye. But my dad wouldn't move. My mom kept saying, Douglas, go say goodbye to your father. And he was frozen, tears welling in his eyes. He didn't want to, or maybe he didn't know how to. He eventually went into the living room, tears streaming down his face. And I I know there's all these stigmas about crying, but in that moment, I didn't see my dad as weak. I saw him as human. I saw him as relatable. And I loved him even more for it. This completely changed the way that I saw my dad and also helped me realize that crying and emotions are important to show. For a long time, there was this old school mentality that coaches and leaders were supposed to be stoic, rough around the edges, always right, and even mean. Yes, I've had some pretty mean coaches in my day, but I believe the best leaders show their humanity, are vulnerable, and don't judge themselves for it. I mean, we aren't supposed to know all the answers. The joy is in finding them. Recently, one of my coaches, Bev Priestman, of course, of the national team, had a tactical meeting where we were going over some strategies in a new formation. She commented that we were going to try a few things. When the training session ended, I overheard her speaking with some of the players, and no one was really sure if it was working or not, and we were all, they were all kind of talking about what we could do different. Now, this may seem like a small moment, But for me, I thought it was a huge moment in her leadership. She showed the vulnerability of uncertainty and a willingness to grow with her players and even learn from them. 
It was a curiosity with no ego. She also demonstrated that mistakes were part of the learning process and wasn't judging herself for it. I have played with many players and coaches with egos bigger than this room, which to me only means one thing. There is very little room left for learning. It's funny, I'm 38 years old now, and I'm older than most of my coaches. But now, for the first time, I can actually see myself being a coach one day. I had the pleasure of coaching a number of high-level goalkeepers recently, all of them eager and desperate to learn. They reminded me of my younger self. As a coach, I was inspired, especially the moments, you know, when you see something click and their eyes light up. I can also see that there is a pressure there, wanting to do right by these athletes, helping them get to that next level, and that you could see this as a burden or the greatest gift. I cannot count the number of hours coaches have committed to me and my development, but I assure you, I remember every single coach that I have ever had. Again, I was inspired by the convention because all of the coaches in the room when I was presenting the speech are all there because they want to be more, to do more. And that is incredible to me because I believe asking the best from your athletes also means that you ask that of yourself. And generally your athletes see that whether you think they do or not. Mr. Ian Fuge was one of my favorite coaches when I was about 14 years old. He would train me twice a week in the gym at his junior high school. His paying job was being a teacher. He would put down these wrestling mats and he had a bag of balls with him. And then he would throw a ball at me. I would dive for the ball, land on the wrestling mat, catch it, give it back to him, dive the other direction, go back and forth over and over and over. I don't remember much else, to be honest, about that season. But Mr. Ian Fuge, he always showed up, no matter what, two times a week, every week for an entire year because I had a dream. His commitment to me helped me to believe wholeheartedly in that dream that was planted in my brain when I was five years old, watching the Calgary Olympics. To all the coaches who are listening, who are doing their best to help guide those huge dreams, and to all the coaches who are listening, who are continuing to push themselves to be better, thank you for your inspiration. Thanks so much for listening again today. There are some really exciting episodes coming your way. I'm doing a ton of research to make sure I'm getting them as, as accurate as possible. Uh, once again, I'm just always inspired and grateful for any feedback. Please never hesitate to reach out. Um, you'll hear all of my information in the outro. And once again, a huge thank you to Bet Online. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports. Bet Online, where the game starts. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Three Sides with Aaron McLeod. If you are interested in hearing about a certain topic, let me know. You can email me directly at themotivenation1 at gmail.com or my Mindful Project email, Aaron at themindfulproject.us. Thank you for your presence and for listening.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.